Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Good morning. A blessed Easter to all of you. Every once in a while, I find myself watching uh, YouTube videos of performances of classical music. That sounds uh, more sophisticated than it actually is. I actually don't know that much about classical music, and I usually feel that I don't understand enough about it to really appreciate uh, as much as it ought to be appreciated. But I do sometimes watch them, and I'm particularly drawn to really grandiose performances, the majestic, exalted symphonies, the grand finales, uh, a full orchestra in full swing, preferably with a big choir too. Things like the end of Mozart's 41st symphony or the Ode to Joy in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. There's really nothing like a really stirring performance of that last movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I sometimes think that of all the wide range of human emotion and experience that music is able to express, that triumphant joy must be the greatest. Not because it is itself any better than, say, sad music or something gentle and soothing or any other emotion, but because really triumphant and joyful music beckons us beyond our own experience to a kind of joy that we really only ever taste in brief moments or seasons in this life. It is what all our sadness and longing and contemplation are pointing us toward, in a way. It is the fulfillment of all those experiences and feelings. And that's something I've sometimes thought to myself when I watch these performances. I think, this is what the music of heaven must be like. Maybe your idea of the music of heaven is something else besides these kinds of symphonies. And that's good, of course. (laughs) There's joyful music from all cultures and places and times. But whatever your own idea of heavenly music is, such grand, transcendent joy does tap into something deep within us. The expression of an overwhelming joy that only heaven can finally fulfill. One of the most famous examples of the kind of music I'm talking about is Handel's Messiah. Handel wrote Messiah apparently in just about three weeks. And there are lots of stories that he was divinely inspired. That as he wrote the Hallelujah Chorus, heaven itself was opened up before him. Well, I don't know that I necessarily buy that, but except maybe in the general sense in which all composers are divinely inspired in a way. But you can certainly see why people might think that and why they might tell those stories. If you want majestic and exalted, the Messiah really delivers. People have a kind of reverence for it, even standing when the Hallelujah Chorus is performed, like it's more than merely human music, like it is actually the music of heaven. It's not the Hallelujah Chorus that I want to land on today, 
The Hallelujah Chorus is not the finale of the Messiah, though I'd forgive you if you might have assumed that. It's just the finale of the second part. The finale of the whole Messiah is the chorus, Worthy is the Lamb, which is taken from Revelation 5, our lesson for this morning. Messiah is an oratorio, which was a musical form that flourished in Handel's time. It was sort of like opera in the sense that it was telling a story through songs and on a grand scale, usually with an orchestra and a choir. But oratorios didn't have the props or the set designs or the elaborate costumes that opera had. And oratorios often treated religious subjects like the Messiah. Handel's Messiah is in three parts. The first part begins with the prophecies of Christ uh, in the prophets and culminates with the announcement of Christ's birth to the shepherds from Luke 2. The second part tells of Christ's passion and ends with the Hallelujah Chorus. And the third part begins with the resurrection of the dead and culminates with Christ's glorification in heaven. So in a very general sense, the Messiah maps onto our church calendar, beginning in Advent with Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah and ending with the triumphant risen Christ taking his place in heaven. Well, it's Easter, and we are nearing the end of our church year. So just as in Handel's Messiah, we come to our lesson this morning from Revelation 5, having already rehearsed the story of Christ throughout the scriptures, beginning with the prophecies about his advent in the Old Testament and following through the whole story, through his birth, death, and now his resurrection. And the text from Revelation 5 is a fitting choice. In fact, I think in some ways the only choice for the grand finale of the Messiah. In many ways, it's an ascension text, This is the glorified Christ taking his place in heaven. But we have it here as an Easter text, and that works perfectly well, too. Uh, You may have noticed the lectionary gives us just a few verses from Revelation 5, verses 11 through 14, the final stirring lines of worship. But I want to go back a little bit and set the scene for us. So if you have your Bible, you can look at Revelation 4 and 5 with me, or you can just listen, and I'll explain as we go. The Apostle John has been caught up into heaven, and in Revelation chapter 4, he is invited to look into the very throne room of heaven. He sees God himself seated on the throne in great majesty. The throne is surrounded by a sea of glass. And from it come lightning and thunder. John also sees four living creatures, one like a lion, one like an ox, one with the face of a man, and one like an eagle. We recognize these creatures from Ezekiel chapter 1, where they also show up. And they're generally understood to be angelic beings, maybe cherubim. Around God's throne, there are also 24 elders, robed in white, golden crowns on their heads. They seem to be human figures, 
though there's not really a settled consensus on who exactly they might be. Maybe they're the 12 sons of Jacob plus the 12 apostles. Whoever they are, they seem to represent the people of God. So that having representatives of the Israelite people and the church, the patriarchs and the apostles, would make sense. And the four living creatures, presumably angels, the 24 elders representing the people of God, are worshiping God together. The four living creatures are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And John tells us that day and night they never cease to sing this song. The 24 elders are worshiping too. They fall down before the one who sits on the throne and cast down their crowns before him and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the scene John sees in heaven in Revelation chapter 4. Continuous worship before the eternal throne of God. But in Revelation 5, there's a problem. In God's right hand is a scroll, sealed up with seven seals. And an angel stands up and cries out, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And no one is found to open it, not in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And it says that when John saw this, he wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Why such weeping? Well, this scroll contains the eternal decrees of God, God's eternal purposes for the world. These are God's eternal mysteries. And they're hidden, sealed with seven seals, utterly inaccessible to anyone except God himself. The secret things belong to God, it says in Deuteronomy. And in 1 Timothy, it says that God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. John weeps because God's plan is hidden. There's no one to open it or make it known. God is on his throne. His purposes have been set and written down from all eternity, but no one is able to reveal them or bring them to pass. John weeps because he wants to see the world without sin, death, and the devil. He wants to see God's kingdom established on the earth. But how? Who can accomplish this? No one. No one in heaven, that's the angels. No one on earth, human beings, or under the earth, Satan and his devils. Is worthy to open the scroll, so John weeps and weeps. But he need not weep. One of the elders tells him, See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Someone has been found who can accomplish this. It's the lion of Judah. One of the oldest messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, 
when the patriarch Jacob blessed his sons at the end of his life, he said that Judah would be like a lion, that the scepter would not depart from him, and that the nations would be obedient to him. Judah would be a lion, a mighty king over all the nations. Now here at last is God's lion, the heir of the tribe of Judah, the rightful king of his people, and of all the nations on the earth. But when John turns to look, he doesn't see a lion. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. A lamb looking as if it had been slain. And it's the lamb who goes up to the throne and who takes the scroll from the right hand of God. John doesn't even pause to note the discrepancy between the lion and the lamb. If we're not paying attention, we might skim right over it. The elder just says, the lion of Judah is coming to open the scroll, and then John turns and sees a lamb. The elder was not wrong. It's just that the lion is the lamb. The lamb is the lion. This is the paradox at the heart of the gospel. God has conquered death through death. His mighty power has been revealed in weakness. The Lion of Judah has conquered by becoming a sacrificial lamb. And what a striking detail that the lamb appears looking as if it had been slain. We're not told exactly what that looks like, but we can imagine it might have been a bit jarring, maybe even a little gruesome. Here is a lamb who had been slain. We're meant to think of Isaiah 53 here. This is the same lamb who was led out to slaughter without opening its mouth. This is the same lamb who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. I don't know if you remember the story of King Arthur and the sword and the stone. This is a little like that, or maybe that is a little like this. I imagine whoever first told that story may have had this somewhere in the back of their mind. But the young Arthur is the only one who's able to draw the sword from the stone proving that he is the rightful heir to the kingdom, according to the prophecy. And it's the same here. Only God can reveal God's eternal purposes to the world. And so by opening this scroll, the Lamb is shown to be God. Only the promised Messiah can carry out God's righteous judgments. And so this Lamb is shown to be the promised Messiah. The church father, Origen, says more. Only Jesus can read the words of God properly. And so he opens up the closed book of Scripture and makes it known to us. So this passage also teaches us how to read the Bible. The lamb who was slain is the key to understanding all of Holy Scripture. He is not only its subject, but he is also the one who opens it and makes it known to us. 
Now, finally, we're ready for the song. All heaven has been waiting for this moment. The 24 elders have been expecting it. The four living creatures crowd around. This is the turning point in all eternity. The ultimate goal of Christ's redemption is about to be realized. And as the lamb who had been slain takes the scroll from the right hand of God, heaven erupts in jubilant praise. The 24 elders and the living creatures fall down before the lamb in worship. Remember before they had fallen down in worship before the one who was sitting on the throne. Now they fall down before the lamb. The lamb is equally deserving of their worship as the one sitting on the throne. Then they take up harps and golden bowls of incense, which we're told are the prayers of the saints, and they sing a new song to the lamb. Why a new song? Because the old song wouldn't do. The lamb has accomplished something completely new, so they need a new song to praise him. And so they sing, in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The lamb is worthy to open the scroll because he was slain. And because by his blood, he purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them into a kingdom and priests. In other words, it is because the lion has become a lamb that he has conquered and accomplished God's purposes. This is heaven's champion, returning to God, having accomplished what he had been sent out to do. Having made himself nothing, he now inherits all things. After the song is sung, myriads and myriads of angels join in. Repeating the theme of the song, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And maybe you can hear the rhythm of Handel's version in that verse. Notice that this is the same song that the elders and the living creatures had been singing back in chapter 4. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Except now, instead of being directed to the Lord our God, it's directed to the Lamb who was slain. This passage is teaching us the doctrine of the Trinity. The figure on the throne and the Lamb are somehow distinct persons, and yet the same God worthy of the same praise. And just to underline the point, finally every creature in heaven and on earth and in the sea joins in, and they praise both the Father and the Son together. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. It's no accident that Handel's Messiah culminates with this song. 
worthy is the lamb. It's not just that that was a nice one to end on or seemed to work pretty well. One of many options that could have worked just fine. No, worthy is the lamb is the music of heaven in a very particular sense. Not Handel's version, of course. He did a pretty good job with it. But this song transcends any particular cultural expression. It is, after all, sung by every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the song that heaven itself sings even now. This is our great theme forever and ever. And it's not only the angels who sing it. The church, too, is caught up in this heavenly song. The 24 elders who first sing the song represent the people of God, as we've said. So their song is our song, too. But notice also that they take up bowls of incense, which we're told are the prayers of the saints. Right there in the throne room of God are your own praises and mine, filling the air with their sweet aroma. That's where they go. Whenever we worship here, right here at Church of the Redeemer in Highwood, Illinois, we too are lifted up into the very worship of heaven. It happens at morning prayer every morning when we gather to offer the morning sacrifice of praise. And it's also written into the shape of our communion service. Every week at the beginning of communion, we lift our hearts up to heaven. Every week, we join our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. And that's the song of the angels, the holy, holy, holy. Together, we proclaim the worthiness of the lamb who was slain. And there, in the very presence of God, we feast at his table before finally we are sent out into the world to love and serve him. It's impossible to imagine a more majestic, more exalted song than this one. Worthy is the Lamb is the song that all our sad songs, all our songs of longing and grief are pointing us toward. One day, all our sad songs will be changed, not erased, but swallowed up, transposed into this joyous song, the very music of heaven. We'll sing together with the angels themselves and with the multitude of the redeemed, filled with unspeakable joy at the beholding of our Lord, the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who is worthy. But here is a great mystery. That song is already begun. And we are invited to join in, even now. Let's sing it together, shall we? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.